You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast based on accidents in North American climbing. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. This episode is also brought to you by Cavu. Cavu is run by full-on fun fanatics seeking the next adventure. Our formula for living well is simple. Build good times into everything you do, so that's where we start. Cavu creates true outdoor wear, stylish bags, and all the necessities for busy living. You can find our full range of styles for men and women in fine stores all over the world, online, and at our two Cavu flagship retail locations in Seattle. If you're an AAC member, you get 50% off Cavu using the code FUNHASNOSEASON, all capitals, no spaces, at checkout on Cavu.com. Thank you to the Colorado Art Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. Cozy up. I'm going to read you a short excerpt straight out of the American Alpine Club's annual publication, Accidents, to set up this next episode. On May 12th, Malcolm Daly and Jim Danini of Boulder, Colorado, flew onto the Tocositna Glacier at 7,500 feet to attempt a new route on Mount Hunter, which sits at 14,573 feet. The Colorado team spotted a potential route on Thunder Mountain, 10,970 feet, a satellite of Mount Hunter, which has a short approach from the airstrip. Daly and Danini started climbing a couloir containing mixed ice, snow, and rock, with a technical difficulty that included some grade 6 ice steps. The Colorado team spent the next several days climbing up the couloir and returning to their base camp each night. During the next several days, Daly and Danini experienced several problems on the Thunder Mountain route. Danini had crampon points fail, and Daly was hit with a chunk of ice or rock that numbed his arm, requiring them to return to base camp. And well, I can continue to read this article, but I'll let Malcolm Daly tell you the rest of the story. I am Malcolm Daly. I am 63 years old, and 20 years ago, actually 19 years and and 11 months ago, um, I was in an accident on the south face of Thunder Mountain. Now, Thunder Mountain isn't marked on any USGS maps anywhere, but it's getting kind of well known. It's a extension of the south ridge of Mount Hunter. So we're just at the very south edge of Denali National Park. and um, Up in Alaska. Up in Alaska. Thank you. Um, I went up there with Jim Danini, who's, you know, probably doesn't need any introduction, uber famous kind of alpinist, early Yosemite climber, um, Patagonian explorer and, and climber. Um, we were at a trade show and it was crazy. And I just looked at him. I said, let's go to Alaska. And he said, let's do it. Sounds like a great Uh, idea. Yeah. (laughs) Had, had you ever been to Alaska before? I, I had um, 
you know, I've done a lot of kind of good high standard alpine climbing, but all kind of in Colorado and in the United States. Um, I'd climbed a lot with Jeff Lowe and Duncan Ferguson and Mike Weiss and that crew as we were trying to develop, you know, the new latest generation of ice tools and monopoint crampons and things. But yet I'd never been into Alaska. And who better to do it with than the guy who probably did most of the early high standard routes in the Roof Gorge than uh, Jim Donini. So he was definitely the master here. So you're, so you're in good company. Yeah, yeah, I was in really good company. I'd, I'd be dead if I didn't, wasn't in such good company. <laughs> I'll explain it here. So we, we flew into the... Um, we flew into the into the southwest fork of the Tokositna Glacier, and um, we our plan had been to try to do a first ascent of um, the south buttress of Mount Hunter, and we ran a load of gear up to the base of uh, the south buttress of Hunter, and um, came back, and as we were doing that. When we got back, the light fell on the south face of what is Mount Thun- Thunder Mountain, and we go, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 maybe we should do a warm-up climb here. And this face, um, you know, straight out of the Ruth, Gr- Ruth Gorge, 3,500 feet of vertical from the glacier to the summit, um, we didn't think it had been climbed. I, I guess we, we knew that this, it had been summited off the West Ridge, but we didn't think there had been any, any routes on the face. And it looked like high standard, you know, rock and ice and mixed climbing, kind of just the kind of thing we like to do. So we, without, I'll make this short, we, we actually made th- um, three attempts at it. The first time we went up and got up pretty high, uh, oh, the right, the route was really a, a steep snow field leading into a, a Kuar gully system um, with a step about a thousand feet up the ground, uh, off the glacier, um, a step of ice, maybe a hundred feet, and then a kind of a mixed pitch or two of kind of, you know, M4, M5, lower angle mixed, and then a steep, steep snowfield, 60 degrees or so um, for another 1,200 feet leading up to seven or 800, 100 feet of a really narrow, steep ice ribbon. That sounds absolutely dreamy. Oh my God. It, it was, it was, what, <laughs> it was like what I had been looking for. Right. Yeah. And, and um, so this little ribbon of ice led up to the summit snowfields later on. But anyway, we we um, we got up through the, the, the first day. We we couldn't do that first ice fall. It was just super chossy ice. So we had to do like nine pitches of traversing to get back out and back around that section. And then we kind of got up. The, the mix climbing was pretty easy. And we ran up the snowfield to the very base of the ice ribbon. And when we got there, Jim looked at me and said, I had to, I have to go down. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, the weather was good. We were cruising, looked really good. And he said, look at my crampon. And, and he, um, his crampon, the, the front point of his crampon was totally curled around like 180 degrees. And um, Jim worked for me at the time. I owned a climbing gear company called Trango and, and I had given Jim a set of 
you know, samples and, but they were, um, they were photo samples. They hadn't been, they weren't final, finalized. They hadn't been heat treated. And I'd written on them with an ink pen and said, you know, do not use photo samples only (laughs) for the gear bag. So anyway, we bailed that day, um, took kind of a rest day and, um, to kind of wander around the glacier. And then we went back up again. And this time, when we were on the mix pitch down below, um, I got hit in the arm by a chunk of ice, you know, I don't know, what was it? Football size or something. Just whacked my, it gave me a really good whack and it, I got dead, uh, dead arm. And so we decided to go down and shake that off. And so finally the third, third time we went up there and, um, got all the way up and we were, we were totally cruising and a beautiful day. Um, our pilot, Paul Roderick checked on us. It was maybe nine o'clock in the morning. We were, you know, just a few hundred feet from the summit. He wagged his wings and we waved at him, gave him the thumbs up. And, um, Jim said, I can, I can lead those, the hard ice pitches because he said, yeah, this is your first time in Alaska, man. This is beautiful. This is my gift to you. So I'm like, cool. So we did, uh, we, we, we did the first two pitches and then the third pitch was really the, the prize of it. There was about 120 feet of vertical and overhanging, just perfect, you know, hero ice. Um, I placed three or four ice screws in there at the top of that pillar. Um, there was a snow field, uh, steep snow, you know, again, 60 degrees or so. Um, I'd placed a screw, screw maybe 10 or 11 feet below the top of that section. So I just ran up the snow field and the top, there was 15 feet maybe of a, the final step. And when I got up there, I just looked at it and the, you know, the rock was just choss. It was horrible Alaskan Alpine rock. Um, I didn't have any snow pickets or anything like that. Um, I put a screw in the base of that you know, when I was standing at the base of it, I pull it, put a screw in, but it was a, it was a stubby and it was obviously, you know, it wasn't good. Uh, it wasn't quality, good quality ice. And I climbed it and it you know, again, it wasn't, wasn't hard. Um, it was, it was pretty easy. I was able to, you know, kick my feet into it really nicely and kind of swing tools. And I was working the left side of that pillar. So my left foot and my left tool were on the rock and um, I got up to the top and uh, of it and my my tools were over the lip and i yelled down to jeff to to jim i said hey i'm almost done i'm glad we're getting out of here things are starting to melt out and that was the last thing i remember um jim jim recalls looking up and hearing me you know some sort of garbled yell and then just see the ropes kind of shimmery shaky coming down loose you know and then i hit him on the way down um, and, you know, uh, ended up hanging on the rope. Um, he couldn't quite see me. Um, I, what had happened was I'd gotten hit on the head by something and knocked off, um, that top screw, which was 10 feet or so below me pulled out. And all of a sudden they had 80 feet of slack in the rope. So I took, you know, it was pretty close to a 200 footer. And hitting Danini on the way down, and and I, I I stomped on his, you know, I hit hit his his thigh. He was in a sort of a sling belay, hanging belay, and I I managed to harpoon his leg. Our our trango crampons were called harpoons, 
And oh no! So nice so then now he's got so you fell. He doesn't really know what's going on because he just you came just out of the sky and hit him. And you you did you did he get a puncture wound in his leg? Yeah, he got twelve little puncture punch inch long puncture wounds wounds in his thigh. Oh wow! Inch and, long um, puncture wounds in his thigh. Twelve of them. So now yeah, he's bleeding. Good. You're hanging there. Yeah, he's, he's he's bleeding, but you know he's a hard man, man. The guy is made of gristle and sinew, so he didn't bleed too much. Um, but anyway, um, I I I was kind of knocked out, and Jim remembers, you know, yelling down a few times, and and finally he hears me say, "Jim," and he said, "What?" and he said was I leading? <laughs> he said, yeah. And he goes, did I fall? And he goes, yeah. And, and, uh, said, you okay. And, and I, I don't remember doing it, but I had actually put in two ice screws and equalized them and clipped myself off with a locking beaner. Wow. So I had some engrams built in, I guess that allowed me to go on autopilot. So anyway, he repelled down to me when he, when he pulled the rope down from up there, he found that the rope had been cut almost all the way through. There were three or four strands of the core left. Um, and literally at the halfway mark of the rope. And so that's why I think it was a 200 footer. Um, okay. you know, a lot of times on a super gnarly fall, you'll get a chop and a rope like that. So anyway, I, I, you know, whatever it was, I, I ended up 40 or 50 feet below him after, you know, climbing 120 feet or so or whatever it was. So um, anyway, um, he wrapped down to me. Both of my legs were completely trashed. Um, I had an open tib fib on my left leg and a crutch. I didn't know what was wrong with my leg. It was, it wasn't, there was no blood or anything, but uh, with my right ankle, but it was obviously, it was just flopping around and there was no way to do anything. So we um, took out my, my Alpine first aid kit, which is a roll of tape, a bandana, and a Swiss army knife. And we made my, um, we made a splint out of an ice ax around my leg. Um, we, we taped both of my legs together with the ice ax to kind of stabilize it. And um, we got down that narrow skinny little ribbon. We, you know, we got down, got ourselves down probably 500 feet or something. And at the when we got to the top of that snowfield that connected the two technical sections, the whole splint thing just fell apart. And I was bleeding, and it was like you know, it was a it was a tough decision. But really, Jim thought that it would be better if um, he chopped out a ledge, tied me off up there, and then went down to the glacier. And I could I concurred. He left, uh, he took all the climbing gear and uh, he had, I was tied up, I was tied into the rock and a couple of cams right above at the top of the snowfield. He left me all the food, the water, all the heavy duty clothing. He left me his pack so I had one to sit on and one to put my feet in. Um, we cut the laces off of my boots. Um, didn't appear to be bleeding too bad on my leg, but it, um, you know, we, we just wanted to, wanted to get out of there. Yeah. Um, and did and he, then, and uh, he left you because he, you guys have a, maybe a sat bone on the glacier at camp or something or. So 
Jim is this awesome guy, but he has some rules. And, and one is no oxygen in the Himalayas. Another one is fixed, no fixed lines in Patagonia. And his third one is no radios in Alaska. Okay. So we did wow. not have a radio. Okay. <laughs> and the plot and the plot thickens, Malcolm. Yeah. So, the, by the way, this is 1999. So the sat phones were pretty rare at the time. Um, cell phones were pretty, you know, they, there was no reach at that. Questionable. Point. So yeah, the plot thickens, right? <laughs> and um, he had uh, Paul Roderick from TAT had been flying by every couple of days, and um, he'd flying flown by that morning, you know, we'd give him the, you know, the high five and everything when he flew by and we, we didn't think we were going to see him for a couple of days. So we tied the two ropes together and I lowered Jim down 400 feet, um, passing two knots, right? Cause remember the rope was cut. So we had to tie that section out of there. And, um, he was out of sight, um, when it was time for me to untie the ropes and throw him down the hill. And, you know, that was kind of a choking up moment, right? You know, the, the the rope is our symbol of partnership and competence and connection agreement to take care of each other. And, and when when you leave a partner on the ledge tied in without any way to get down, um, that was that was a, you know, was I really sure I wanted to do this? But we really looked at it like that was the right thing to do. And so when I untied the rope and I let watched it slither down the snow and disappear out there, it was like, wow, big, that was a big deal. Yeah. And, and probably, and for, and for your partner too, I mean, for him to leave you up there, I wonder what was going through his mind. Well, I, you know, I, we, we talk a lot of, about it, you know, and, and we really didn't think we had much of a you know, of, of an option to get down. We, I mean, we were in super technical, technical terrain. This was not the kind of thing I could have crawled down. Right. Um, a la Doug Scott. Um, it, it, it would have been, it was a technical descent and, um, we, we just didn't have, you know, if we'd had a backflip backpack full of first aid equipment and Sam splints and stuff, we probably could have self re um, rescued, but we did. And so we decided not to. Um, it was, it was my decisions as, as much as it was Jim's. I, I don't, you know, think poorly of him. Um, he was out there saving my life and my gave him the pat on the back metaphorically and, and said, man, go for it. You know, my life is in your hands. Um, and don't forget he was wounded too. <laughs> right. So, um, he had the world's biggest Charlie horse, um, and, and, and 12 puncture wounds. Um, so anyway, he rappelled down and, and I could hear him, you know, I could hear him tapping in pins and clanking and once in a while he'd yell and, and we, you know, it was really still, even though we were quite a ways away from each other, I could hear him going down, but I couldn't see him. And then at some point, and I'm going to guess it was late afternoon. Just, you know, I think we, I think my fall was around nine or nine 30 in the morning. Um, I left, I finally could see the lower end of the snow field where it ran out onto the flat glacier. And finally I saw him come, come down and he was, he left the, the ropes um, tied in at the last cliff line 
thinking that the rescuers might use them. And so he down climbed, you know, eight or 900 feet of steep 50, 60 degree snow down to the glacier. As soon as he, I knew he was really injured because as soon as it got flat, he couldn't walk. Right. All, all of a sudden his, he didn't have weight on his ice tools or on the rope. And, and he literally was stumbling and falling and crawling to get back to the tent. Now I couldn't see where the tent was. It was just kind of around a, an arete. And uh, we, we, if I'd been able to see the tent, I would have been in avalanche danger right there. So we put it around the corner. Um, and he, he, he disappeared and, and things got really quiet and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? And here's the crazy thing within, within 20 minutes of Jim getting back to the tent, which was only a few hundred yards, maybe, or a hundred yards from where the bottom of the gully was, he heard an airplane engine and, um, Paul Roderick, our pilot, um, had been flying some fuel into Cahiltna base, base and had dropped it off. And it, it wasn't right on his path to come by our, our base camp, but he had his spidey sense went off and he got the, you know, the creepy feeling that he needed. Well, I just got, I just got chills just now. I just got chills by it, you saying that. Yeah, it was, it, this was the craziest thing. And, and, um, he, he just, he said, man, I need to go check those. And, and he came over that pass and Danini scrambled out of the tent, waved his big orange, you know, uni suit around and, well, all I remember is hearing that plane set up to land. You know, they make the, the, the noises that planes do when they cut the, you know, the manifold and do whatever else they do, you know, and it was clearly setting up to land. And then I heard it land and then I heard it spool up and take off. And I'm like, yeah, you know. Okay. So, I'm, yeah. So I'm up there tied out, of, uh, you know, tied into this ledge. And, and I thought at first maybe I was going to lie down, but as soon as I laid down and just looked up at the sky and those cliffs above me and all the ice and all that crap, I'm like, no, I'm not going to watch this, you know, cliff face avalanche down on me. So I just sat um, while I did it with my legs extended out. I, I packed, um, tried to pack snow over my lower legs inside the pack just to protect them because I didn't want an ice bomb or a rock or something coming down and smashing my already injured legs. Um, and then I waited. And, um, you know, that night was kind of interesting. We've got kind of light snow all night. And you guys have been you know, on the side of a mountain in the winter, know that you get these spindrift, spindrift avalanches that, you know, they, the snow builds up on every little edge and foothold and crack. And eventually it releases into a very light kind of, it goes down the back of your neck, down the front of your shirt, kind of spindrift avalanche. And, you know, I, I just, I was dealing with these all night. And so the first night went really, really quickly. I was, you know, at the you know, a big bomb of loose snow would come down and, um, you know, cover me and I'd have to dig out from behind the ledge and I'd have to shake it out of my, my jacket. And, um, you know, I did that all night and, um, that was, you know, it, it, I, I was fine. I, I was, you know, I felt my body temperature was good. I was able to drink water every time I, I, I take a drink out of my water bottle. I'd, put some more snow on it. I put it in, had this big giant down baby pack parka. So I'd, I'd warm snow in there or, or melt snow in my jacket. Um, 
And um, next next day, uh, when it got light, light, there was a blanket of clouds over the over the mountain, and this was kind of weird. It, it had happened a couple of times during the few days beforehand, where there was almost like a literally a cotton batting blanket that lay over the Thunder Mountain, and um, I knew that was under there because I could f- hear a plane flying back and forth. They were doing a vertical search for me, starting down low and go back and forth and back and forth. And I couldn't see a damn thing. And then when it was right at my altitude, a little hole opened up in the clouds and I saw the plane and he saw me and I raised my hands and he wagged his wings and he took off and I knew that they knew that I was alive and they'd start the rescue. So that was another one of those kind of serendipitous moments. Um, Where the sky just literally opens up. <laughs> literally just opened up. And then it, you know, it cleared during the day and they, I spent the day watching them fly, you know, equipment and planes and people. And there's a helicopter flying around doing power checks. They had the llama going up and down and, um, uh, you know, towards the end of the afternoon, uh, you know, they kept on flying more and more people. I don't know how many people were on the glacier, but probably, you know, 12 or 15. There were um, guys from the Alaska Mountain Rescue, the, the volunteer group there. The Denali rescue team was there with their helicopter and the pair jumpers that took 212th Airborne were doing med tents and stuff down there. The one weird thing that happened is when the when the helicopter was was they were trying to decide whether to you know how to get me out of there, right? Denali is they're an awesome awesome rescue group, um, but they don't have a lot of technical terrain rescue experience, um, and so they were deciding you know they it was by their protocols it was way too steep to do a short haul. Um, I think the maximum short haul length that they that that it fits within their protocol was 50 feet and i think they wanted at least 100 feet of rotor clearance um to do that and of course i was on the side of a cliff and it's hard to do that with just 100 or 50 feet of rope and 100 feet away from the cliff but anyway um the pilot was up there doing power checks and was up on the snow slopes at the very top of the route um, trying to see if he could land rescuers there. And he kicked off a, the rotor um, concussion, kicked off a av- slab, and it came right down and covered me. Ugh. And uh, so that was kind of the scariest thing for me because I was just sure there were going to be rocks and stuff in there. And turns out I was, I was, it was so steep that the avalanche kind of went past me right and and what i got was was like kind of being behind a waterfall right where where i was just sort of gently pounded by soft snow as it went by everybody on the ground you know there were a bunch of people down at the bottom of it watching this thing and they all had to run because you know things came down the gully and um fortunately none of them got hurt and i wasn't hurt when finally all the snow settled i was okay um but That's amazing. They, yeah, it was. Um, it was. Yeah, it was a pretty scary thing. They, I think they called it a day at that point. They they put the helicopter back, and the the pilot from the park service had um, he was at his end of his hours that he's allowed to book every you know every five days or whatever it is. They just spent three days up on Denali res- rescuing some Brits who were up there, and so he couldn't fly it anymore. So. Um, they called up the relief pilot 
Um, and he flew up that night. Um, anyway, I, you know, things got real quiet for me and it wasn't snowing. There was no work to do and I was getting cold and I decided I needed to make a rescue plan or, uh, I need to survive. I, I decided, I, I decided to live that I was going to live. It was not a acceptance of what was happening, but for me, I decided that, you know, if I was going to survive, I need to stay warm. So. I made this plan to do a hundred windmills with one arm, one arm, and then a hundred on the other, and then a hundred crunches on the ledge. And I do this every time I start to fall asleep or, or uh, get cold. And, um, you know, if you've ever done any sort of endurance windmilling, <laughs> you know, that it gets old pretty quick. And so what I would, I turned it into a pounding, a counting game. So first, you know, after I couldn't do a hundred on one side, I'd do 90 and then 10 and then the next round I do 80 and 20. And then, I, you know, that was kind of the way I did it. And it became this big counting, counting game for me. Which keeps your mind off of, off the situation a little bit. It kind of distracts you almost, huh? Yeah. I mean, it gave me something to do and, and it, you know, engaged me and it involved me with my own survival. And, you know, we hear all kinds of, you know, you listen, you hear all kinds of survival stories and things about all these, you know, people who get into crazy situations and the ones that survive are the ones who plan to survive, right. Who take charge of their survival and decide that they're, that they're going to, they're going to deal with it. The people who don't survive are the ones who just sort of sit there and, and, oh, okay, well, if somebody doesn't get me, I guess, yeah, whatever, see you later. Yeah, it's sort of a giving up. But you're but you're right. A lot of the, the folks that I've interviewed, it's the same story. They've just decided, well, this isn't going to work for me. I want to survive. I want to make it. And it's just, a, it's like a, a light turns on. Yeah. And I think that's characteristics of most climbers, right? I mean, we kind of deal with hard shit all the time and, 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 um, you, 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 it's just like finding another crux, right? Okay. Now how am I going to deal with this? So it didn't seem to be a really big deal to me, but, um, you know, I think for a lot of people who can't, a lot of people can't even imagine being by the, yourself for, for two days. Right. They, they, a lot of people, the, the biggest comment they said was, you were all alone. Um, to me, that was like, who cares? I spent a lot of time alone. So, I, you know, I don't know. It, it, but anyway, I, at one point, it was sort of I, I think I dozed off or maybe I passed out. I, you know, who knows? But I have very clear dreams of um, of of seeing the monkeys in the Wizard of Eyes trudging up the hill below me and starting to hack out a heliport and singing, you know, the oh, ee, oh, ee, oh, oh, that, that kind of, I, I just, that was just absolutely vivid to me. And so maybe I hallucinated, maybe it passed out, maybe it's a dream, maybe I made it up, who knows, but it was pretty funny. I, I do remember at wondering why they just didn't hike up the hundred yards and give me a thermos of soup or something. Yeah. So anyway, um, the next morning the relief pilot came up and this guy had never flown a mountain rescue in his life. Okay. But he'd spent tens of thousands of hours flying a llama, which is the, you know, the rescue chopper up there at Denali. And he was a worked for the fire department in LA and so he was used to flying a short haul um, 
with really long lines because the if a building's on fire, you've got this big thermal cl- column that's going up, and you you can't fly in that thermal cl- column and column. So you have to have a really long line to be above it um, when you're hauling somebody off. So he was used to to doing it, and so he got permission from Daryl Miller, who was the rescue ranger, to um, to tie on 200 feet instead of 50 feet um, that had to go up the ladder. The South district ranger vetoed it. It was going to let me die there. Uh, he went up the ladder to the, the next step to the, the guy who was the regional su- superintendent at the time, Ralph Tingey and Ralph approved it. And then the other thing they did was they put a spotter in the helicopter behind the pilot. So um, when he was, he was back in this tight corner, right? There was a big dihedral alcohol thing. And so he needed to hold, position in two dimensions, right? Straight in front of him where the pilot was looking to make sure that his rotor tips didn't hit the rock. And then the spotter looked uh, over to the left or right side. I don't know what side it was. And so he could hold possession. And then the spotter also looked down to make sure that the barrel man, the guy at the end of the rope was, um, you know, close enough to me. And just even with 200 feet of rope and and only 20 feet of rotor clearance, um, the barrel man um, had to land a couple hundred feet below me and then climb up to me um, to to get to me. And basically climbing up on a giant 200 foot long top top rope attached to a helicopter. Wow! And, and then how did it, how did that feel for you when? the barrel man climbed up to you. That must've been the first contact that you've had in a couple of days, so, right? So you p- picture a helicopter pilot with a helicopter helmet, right? It's those things they've got the, you know, big bubble mask and kind of the earmuff earphones and just got a little screw in the front to, you know, move the visor up and down. And uh, he comes up to me. I have no idea who it was. Right. And all I know is that he was climbing on a pair of Trango ice tools which that was my company. Um, and my first words was like, cool, dude, you got Trango tools. <laughs> and, uh, I, so I, I was actually in pretty good shape. Um, uh, still, I think the exercise and the plan worked anyway. He, he took a you know minute or two to get, make sure I wasn't still attached to the rock. And then we clipped together and, and went flying down, um, hanging out under the helicopter and, and, uh, uh, you know, halfway down, I'm like, dude, thanks a lot, man. This is great. You're rescuing me. And he goes, you don't know who this is? And I'm like, no. And he un- undoes his little bubble visor. And it's my friend, Billy Schott, uh, who is the head, the lead rescue technical dude for the Park Service, uh, who I used to climb with in Fort Collins when I was at college. Anyway, when, when I got down there, they had medical tents set up down there in the glacier, the PJs, um, you know, brought me into the tent, did a primary, secondary survey you know, took my boots off. My free feet were frozen solid, you know, up to my shins. Both feet? What's that? Both feet, frozen solid. Um, and uh, open tib fib on the left. And, and uh, then, a, you know, a flight for lice came in to the glacier and took me to Anchorage. Well, so then, so w- what happened in the hospital? What was, what was, did you lose your, your feet then? Cause you were so frozen the, solid? Uh, at the ER, the, you know, they brought in the attending orthopedic surgeon and he looks at my feet and, and, and he goes, dude, you're going to lose both your feet. And, and I said, yeah, I know. And I think one of the things that allowed me to, to 
deal with the situation at the hand was that I have some pretty good friends who were amputees. And so I knew that a fully active, vital, athletic life was still possible. You know, I didn't know if I was going to live, right? And, and so I, w- I wasn't worried about my feet. Right. Well, it sounded like you were, you were cognitively very um, present, despite, um, you yeah, know. Other, other than the, you know, the Wizard of Oz scene going through my head. Right. Um, I was, I was pretty, uh, I was engaged. I was working on my, on my rescue. I was participating by, by saying, so when I, when I got into the medical tents down at the bottom of the glacier, my bot, my core temperature was 97 degrees. Well, yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah. It was like, super <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, first of all, it never hurts to be with Danini, right? He's like so connected. Um, you know, if it had been me and, and Joey, the climber up there, I don't know if Paul Roderick, despite it, um, yeah. knowing, you know, being in a network of people who are the best of the best, um, you know, I wouldn't have known what pilot to go in with. Right. And, and Danini was like, yeah, Paul, Paul Roderick did tell Keaton a, air taxi is the man don't go with anybody else yeah so that definitely helped and then i think your yeah your partner helped yeah absolutely hmm. so the guy who was the the head rescue ranger for denali national park was another friend of mine who had climbed with uh, cs in fort collins when i was at csu so daryl miller was the guy running the rescue um Billy Schott was a climbing partner of mine also, who was the barrel man down at the end of the rope. And uh, Ralph Tingey, the one who finally authorized it. Well, on the, uh, the night before we um, flew in, we went to his house and had barbecue. And I, I didn't know Ralph at the time, but I met him there. So I think being connected at that level with those people was pretty, pretty key for my survival. It's interesting the word connection that you used a couple of times in a, in a couple of different contexts. So the, the connection of the rope between you and your partner that sort of slid down once he once you untied, and then the connection that you have just to the climbing community in general, which has helped um, has helped you move yeah. forward. Yeah, you know, just the the rope the rope is such a powerful symbol of the partnership. You know, it, 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 that was like the hardest moment, literally for me, was to untie the rope and watch it slither down the rope. That was, I got choked up up there. So Jim and I, you know, a, a month or two after we got back, I, we sat out, we spent a couple of hours just discussing everything that went on. We talked about what gear we had, what we didn't have, um, what we would do different, if, you know, what, how could we do that? And the crazy thing was, um, there's there's literally only one thing that I would do different at that time is that I would never go into the mountains without a pack that has a removable foam pad you can use as a split. Hmm. And, you know, they used to be common. And one of the funny things that happened was, is that there was, we had a pseudo sponsor, a big company. It's a good company. And they donated us these ultralight, you know, Alpine climbing packs that, you know, the, the end all perfect, you know, if you're going to be badass, this is the Alpine climbing pack you want to make. <laughs> it didn't have a removable pad. It had sewn in 
riveted together carbon fiber stays. And there was just no way at all to turn that in. Mm -hmm. So maybe, uh, yeah, like cut a Z rest or something and then slide it just right right behind your back. You know, I think one of the things that helped me, Ashley, was that that I really had, I anticipated and thought through what my psychological reaction would be, you know, to trauma. Um, I've been involved with a few other rescues and, uh, you know, I, I was prepared, I think, emotionally um, to have an accident. You know, you see, you see an awful lot of, you know, people who are just so unprepared for anything out of the norm. And I think, I think maybe, um, even though it wasn't deliberately, I think that, um, I was, I was prepared for this. Prepare to survive. Thank you, Malcolm, for sharing your story of your tenacious survival with us. Malcolm ended up having one foot amputated after many surgeries and attempts to repair the damage. His other foot was saved but had significant frostbite damage. Malcolm is also a founder of Paradox Sports, which has been serving climbers with disabilities for more than a decade. Check him out at www.paradoxsports.org. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. And thank you to the Colorado Howard Brown School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Howard Brown School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in eight to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure your watch can also go the distance. With up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military-grade testing and built with durability in mind. Join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. And remember, you too can help sustain this podcast by donating. Go to AmericanAlpineClub.org backslash donations to find out how. Until next time, play hard and be smart.